You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to episode 303 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. And before I introduce my co-hosts, I should talk about a programming note on this show. Um, Normally, I am joined by Nathan Gilmore and David Grubbs. Uh, Nathan is overwhelmed with everything that's happening with Coronatide, and especially with him having to teach from home and his children having to take classes from home. Um, And so he's going to be taking the rest of the academic year off from this podcast, which means first we're going to replace him with our first guest for today, uh, Victoria Reynolds Farmer, my lovely wife, uh, who will be filling in for him uh, for the rest of the semester. You know Victoria from uh, the Christian Feminist Podcast and from the core curriculum. And if you've listened to this show long enough, you've heard her on that too, because she was a very early guest on this program, I think episode like 14 or 15 on Fans and Fandom. Anyway, how you doing, Victoria? Doing well. Really excited to talk about this record, because apparently I like jazz now, a okay. thing I just learned. It's good to hear. Um, so Victoria will be filling in for Nathan through the end of this calendar year, and then next semester we'll have somebody else, somebody who is not associated with this network, we're hoping. Um And we don't know who that is yet, but when we do know, we'll let you know. Um, My other guest for today is not David Grubbs, even though he's not leaving the podcast for an extended period of time. But he did not feel comfortable talking about our subject today, which is John Coltrane's album, A Love Supreme, as you see from the title of the podcast on your podcatcher. And so filling in for him is someone who is very comfortable talking about John Coltrane, Todd Pedler. Um, who is a professor of English at uh, a professor of English, a professor, (laughs) an honorary professor of English, a a professor of physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. How you doing, Todd? Uh, I am good, and you know, I, I, I maybe could welcome a a change of department now and again. Um, I suspect you are as literate as 50 to 60 percent of English professors. That's just that's just uh, well, my feeling from talking to you. That's that's well, I appreciate the compliment. <laughs> that's that, that would be pretty impressive, I suppose. Yeah, well, that, that's it. T- yeah, Todd, I, Todd is one of the co-hosts of Book of Nature, which is a shall we call it an occasional podcast on this network. At this point in time, that is uh, the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sporadic. It's chaotic. Uh, it's hard when you have three hosts with real jobs. <laughs> yeah, it can, it it can be it can be difficult to get us all on the on the same page uh, when our especially when our, uh, uh, our our institutions or our calendars don't match up very well at all. And then there's the question of grant cycles and busyness that that comes with research. So yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. But uh, you know, if our listeners are interested, they can subscribe to that podcast and they'll get new episodes when they come out. You usually do what three or four a year. Oh, I don't know if it's. Uh, I yeah, I oh, the long term average probably is about that. Because you, you, you they, they come in spurts is what I've noticed. I always yeah. think, oh, Book of Nature's <laughs> back, and then it'll be two or three episodes and. Right. <laughs> but that's okay. Fair enough. We Fair don't enough. pay you to do it, which means uh, you don't have to do it. 
that's true, but uh, we always lament the fact that the, the these gigantic gaps appear. Oh, I think I think it's uh, I think everybody understands at least. Okay. So uh, before we talk about a love supreme, we should do what Nathan usually does on this show, and say what's new on the network. And I uh, have it up on my calendar. Uh, yesterday there was a Christian Humanist Profiles with Trip Fuller. Uh, I believe Nathan is the one who did that interview. I don't know anything about the book, but Trip is the the guy behind Homebrewed Christianity and a longtime supporter of this podcast and this network. So I'm sure it'll be a good interview. And then Friday there is a episode of Christian Feminist podcast coming out. Victoria, do you want to talk about that? Uh, it is a discussion of Queen Athalia from the Book of Chronicles. And by the time this airs, you're probably going to be sick of hearing about the election, which will hopefully be over. But if you're not, last week, last Thursday, City of Man posted an episode about uh, the election wrap-up, and it features the triumphant return of Ed Song. So uh, worth listening to if you're if you haven't already, and if you're not uh, deathly sick of politics, as I suspect many of our listeners uh, indeed are. Anyway, um, this is the second in a series we've been doing, if you can call it a series, when the first was two years ago, on, on important jazz records. And we talked last time about Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, which is, I think, by some, um, by some calculations, the best-selling jazz record of all time. And, and today we're going to talk about one that is, I think, a little less accessible, a little weirder, but no less popular, and that is John Coltrane's A Love Supreme. Um, Coltrane appeared on Kind of Blue. He plays the tenor saxophone there as he plays it here on Love Supreme. And this album came out in 1965. It was recorded at the tail end of 1964. And it's quite late in Coltrane's career because unlike Miles Davis, he died young. He was only, I think, 40 when he died. And it was just a couple of years after A Love Supreme. So this is hinting at a direction his music is about to take. And his music takes that direction to some extent, and then his career is tragically cut off by his early death. Uh, I want to start uh, by attempting to describe this record, uh, which is going to be difficult, I know. Um, and I should say that none of us, as far as I know, have been trained in jazz. And so uh, we're going to be discussing this record as amateurs and attempting to describe it as amateurs. And I hope you'll, uh, you'll cut us some slack because of that. Uh, but hopefully by, by the three of us taking three different passes at this record, maybe we can come to something close to the essence of it. And Victoria, let's start with you. What does A Love Supreme sound like, and particularly in relation to the other jazz records you're familiar with? Uh, it's probably good that you're starting with me, because I am probably the least experienced uh, listener of this record that is going to be talking today. I am by no means a jazz expert. I've really only tried to listen to jazz in earnest in the past two or three years, with the exception of like stuff my dad made me listen to when I was a kid because it was on The Cosby Show. Um, so I don't know a lot. I know that I don't like super experimental jazz, mostly because I don't like super experimental music uh, or stuff that's like really atonal. Uh, I like some Miles Davis. You mentioned Kind of Blue. I like that. I also really like Birth of the Cool, uh, which we own. I like some Dave Brubeck. Basically, I like stuff I've heard that like everybody knows. Uh, I didn't know what to expect from this record, which is one reason why I really wanted to guest on this episode, so that I could kind of force myself to, to think about it and, and figure some stuff out. 
Uh, I really like the record. Um, I like the second and third parts the best. Um, I think it's like just experimental enough for me to be interested and still like it. Like it's it's not too weird, though you're right, it is a little bit weird. Um, and I know I'll talk about this more later, but I'm obsessed with the drum sound on this record. Um, I have fallen in love with Elvin Jones over the course of listening to it. Uh, that drum solo in the third part of the record at the beginning, I want to like crawl inside of and never come out. Uh, I haven't been really descriptive yet, so I guess I'll end by saying uh, the thing I thought about the most while listening to this record is uh, flowing water, like waterfalls. I feel like the record is simultaneously really, really smooth and always kinetic and forward-moving. I don't really know what that means, but it's how it makes me feel. Todd, what would you add to that? Well, I, I would add first a compliment to Victoria's description and and, and to, to say, shame, you were descript- perfectly descriptive. I, I don't feel like you were inadequate at all. Um, those reactions are, they very much mirror my own. Um, although I'd have to say I probably like the first and fourth best, <laughs> interestingly <laughs> enough. Um so I, I first thought of uh, when looking at this question. I first thought of words that came to mind, specific words. Um, and so among them, and they don't characterize the whole piece, but they characterize parts of it. Uh, I would say urgent, um, but effusive, um, and restless. I mean, these are synonymous in some level. Um, but also cathartic. Um, uh, you know, I, I hear I hear in this um, something which isn't always present in Coltrane's music, either before this or after. Um, and and that is a, a sort of waves of emotion that um, that don't settle down really un, until the last movement which is entitled Psalm, and we'll talk about that. Um, but there's a, there are period, periods of, of, of real urgency, um, almost a crying out, um, if you will. And as we talk about this album, I, I'm sure we'll talk about why that might be uh, in here. But, um, but yeah, you know, a, a, a sort of restlessness here that finally finds peace at the end. Um, that That's sort of the broad you know, 30,000 foot view of, of, of this album for me. There's a sense for me in which bebop, the, the kind of frenetic jazz of the 1940s, there's a sense in which that's heroin music. That's the sound of heroin. Um, most of the people who were making it, many of the people who were making it anyway, were on heroin. I think mm. if you if you read some people who, who have done heroin, they, they talk about that music as in some ways mimicking the experience of being on heroin, I don't recommend any of our listeners go try that for themselves. Um, <laughs> if that's true, I think that a love supreme is the sound of kicking heroin. Uh, yeah. Col- Coltrane was famously a heroin addict in the 1950s. He got kicked out of Miles Davis's band for doing too much heroin. <laughs> um, 
Um, and over the next decade, he, he got clean. And I mean, it, I, I say over the next decade because my understanding is he kind of, like a lot of addicts, went back and forth with it. But a lot of the, the spirituality that we associate with Coltrane that we're going to talk about in some detail in a few minutes, a lot of that comes from his experience of beating this drug. And I can't help but hear that in some of the, the, the kind of desperation of this album that, as, as Todd says, resolves at the end, calms down. It finds peace. And, and you, you at, especially in that second movement and in the third one, you, you hear why he needs peace. And by the mm-hmm. end, he's, he's, a, he's found some version of it. And so, you know, there's a, there's a biographical heresy you can commit with, uh, with instrumental music. And I don't think that instrumental music always uh, displays the internal state of the person playing it. But I think in this case, I have a hard time not, not hearing it do so. I, I, would, I would agree with that entirely. And in fact, there's, I, I do believe there's plenty of evidence for that, that this is in many ways an autobiographical piece. Um, and there is that deep connection to his struggle um, and the resolution of that struggle that, that I think this piece represents. If our listeners haven't heard this record and they're familiar more with the ones that Victoria has mentioned, the Dave Brubeck uh, timeout, the uh, the Miles Davis kind of blue, and other kind of cool jazz records, this is something very very different from that. It is it is not relaxing. It's it's difficult to imagine somebody putting this on at the end of the day and making a pic- picture of martinis and you know just kind of unwinding to it. This is this is music that uh, kind of burns inside of you in some ways it's it, it's not background music it wants you to listen to it um and and it can be a difficult listen because it requires that kind of attention but um i agree that it's not relaxing okay. but i think i todd mentioned catharsis and i think if there is a kind of relaxation in this record it is the relaxation that comes from sort of the cathartic purge um, which I mean, everything you've said about um, recovery from from drug addiction tracks there. I think that there is a kind of letting your body let go while you're listening to this record. So a, a relaxation of a sort, but but not the easy kind, the kind that only comes after you've put yourself through a lot. Yeah. And also, I should make it clear, I'm not putting down cool jazz. Uh, I mean, we did Kind of Blue both because it's uh, very famous and very popular and also because it's really, really great. Uh, Dave Ribbeck is great. Stan Getz is great. Like, I like that stuff. It's just that what Love Supreme is doing is is really radically different from what all those people are doing. And the, the truth is, the Coltrane I've heard is is very rarely interested in doing that sort of thing. There's always a kind of frenetic quality to his work, even when it's um, even when it's softer, even when it's slower. Well, he was uh, famously a difficult soloist for pianists to keep up with. Uh, the classic track "Giant Steps," you can hear poor Tommy Flanagan barely holding on as Coltrane flies through the various modes and keys that make up that song. And actually, I think "Giant Steps," um, <laughs> Coltrane solos in every key that it's possible to solo in, and poor Tommy Flanagan just—he—if you go back and listen to the track, knowing it, you can tell that he doesn't really know what he's doing. It sounds great, but he doesn't know what he's doing. 
Um, by the time we get to A Love Supreme, though, Coltrane had found the pianist he'd played with for the rest of his life, uh, McCoy Tyner, who actually just died later this year, or earlier this year. Um, what is he doing on this record, Todd? Uh, well, so um, I want to—I I just want to start by by talking about, um, as, as you already sort of indicated, what the role of a pianist is. And I—I I, I like the fact that you brought Giant Steps in because it's—it's it's tough uh, for for a very important reason. You know, normally what a pianist is doing, and 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 often what a bassist is doing, um, in jazz of the time for sure is providing this floor right this sort of foundation and you know pianists are playing chord 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 they tinkle 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 a little bit um but they the one thing they have to do is keep up with the key changes that the song employs and so that piano is sort of the in some ways it's the voice of reason you know it, it's it it you know we we've got mm-hmm. a an underlying chord that the soloist that's playing on top is uh or the you know if it's not a solo you know if there's the 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 main theme is going above this the the, pia- the piano is largely just keeping time at some level with a progression of chords that are that are um that are going on and and when when solos are flying fast and furious it can be hard if the keys are changing fast and furious too um you know the the giant steps is is from from one of coltrane's albums as he's sort of really coming into his own it's 1959 um uh interestingly uh you know at the end of one you know around the end of his final relationship with miles davis and thelonious monk um and there's some really interesting stuff to talk about, which I'll move, you know, to my, my later conversation with you um, about the kinds of changes that Coltrane is is engaged in uh, in terms of the way music progresses, um, which is really important. One of the big reasons why Flanagan had such a hard time. Anyway, McCoy Tyner um, joins the quartet in 1960, um, and because of the fact that these guys were playing live together all the time from 61 through the love through a love supreme uh when it's released in i think it was 65 um they had developed this chemistry that um is evident in the way that the two communicate in this album um you know it's 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 funny uh you know Tyner himself in an interview, there's an interview on, on NPR uh, with him before he, he died, clearly. Um, and he says uh, that Coltrane didn't even really talk about um, what they were going to do uh, with his, his bandmates. I mean, he, he said, we didn't talk about a lot of things, um, but he told me, I respond to what's around me. This is, you know, Tyner remembering what Coltrane says. And that's the way it should be. Uh, And it was just, I couldn't wait to go to work at night. It was such a wonderful experience. I didn't know what we were going to do. We didn't really explain why things came together so well. And it was just hard. It's hard to explain things like that. There's some trust between the two um, uh, of how he works together with Coltrane. And it's crazy given what Coltrane does. Uh, on the saxophone that Tyner's able to, to, to keep up. So he's playing this role of, 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 of chord progression that, that he just instinctually or, or, or 
with his own particular style. Uh, Tyner's Tyner style is different than than many. He's very mm-hmm. percussive. You know, he's his his chords that he plays oftentimes are quite not. I don't want to say violent, but they're it's more uh, sharp attack than than calm Bill Evans style. That's, or, absolutely, it's hard to think of know, two pianists more unalike than him and Bill Evans. It, it, ex- exactly. Although it's interesting that Bill Evans and Coltrane played together, but <laughs> but that's you know, that's a different story. Um, but it's uh, you know he's got this percussive style, heavy on the left hand, um, and just doing what a pianist does. But with Coltrane going all modal. Uh, you know, uh, it's amazing that 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 really Tyner's able to to keep up. The other thing I would say is is he's got this really beautiful solo um, in I believe it's Resolution, the second movement, um, where he's really you know he's he's just improvising along with the theme. But it's you know it's a place where he steps out of his support role and into. Um, you know, really someone speaking along with, with Coltrane. So for me, I see conversation. I mean, I see mm-hmm. massive conversation in this in this piece more so than um, others which feel more scripted, uh, other pieces which feel more scripted. And I would say that that goes for all four of the members of the, of the, of the quartet here. Um, uh, you know, we, we're the bassist. I mean, I think Jimmy he's Garrison. phenomenal. Jimmy Garrison. He's just phenomenal in this, and um, and he gives so us I, the theme, I, right? He gives us the Love Supreme four note theme, right? He's the one who right introduces the, the whole thing to us. I don't have a question about him, so maybe he we should does. talk to, he, talk about him right now. Well, yeah, I thought. I well, that's that's why I bring him up because I I, I think um, the two of them, you know, um, you got piano, you got you got bass, and the two of them have some interplay also. Um, you know, it is. Um, I just find this a, a marvelous conversation, as 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 music should be. Um, uh, you know, the bass at the end of which is it? I guess it's the very very end, right before Psalm starts. Um, that solo where he is literally solo. I mean, there's no accompaniment of anyone. Um, uh, that's just a beautiful piece uh, place in the in, in the piece as well. But anyway, I mean, Tyner, I just I, I just think over, you know, working five years, you know, constantly on the road together, I think they've developed this ability to know where they're going, uh, know where each other are going. And um, and yeah, you know, he's frenetic when when Coltrane's frenetic, he's calmer otherwise. Um, but I think the style really works well with with what Coltrane's doing here. I, the fact that they've played together for so long I, it's, is so important. Um, the, the, this quartet was more or less intact for the 1960s up until um, up until Coltrane's death. Uh, I, I think Jimmy Garrison was sometimes replaced by Steve Davis, who's another great jazz bassist. But other than that, Tyner 
and Elvin Jones and Coltrane, you know, just stayed together for that entire length of time. You, you contrast that with Miles Davis, who I don't think ever <laughs> held on to two sidemen um, for five years at a, at a, at a time. You know, uh, there, the, yeah. he, he was constantly reinventing himself and using his band to reinvent himself. And, and that's that's, you know, that, that's a, a different kind of great. But you don't get that kind of telepathy that you really do get here between Tyner and um, and Coltrane. Have you heard any of Tyner's solo records, Todd? Um, not knowingly. Um, I mean, not, not certainly anything that, um, uh, I don't own anything that's his. Um, yeah, I, I really don't know. Have you? I have, yeah. And, and they're good. I mean, a lot of them are in the kind of mid-60s Coltrane mode, but not all of them. Mm-hmm. I know he has one that is very disco heavy, which is, which is weird, but it's, it's you know, it's, it's always nice to see people try new things, even if it's not entirely successful. Yeah, it's. I mean, I, clearly, clearly, I would have, I would have expected that. Sort of, this is the, um, you know, he's a little younger than Coltrane, I think, um, and so yeah, he would have been in that in that place. I just can't see him playing in the early fifties, mm-hmm. at least not with the style that he has here. Yeah, I mean, he it he's his his playing is like driving sheets of rain or something you know it's it's not um there's nothing polite about it Bill Evans plays like he's playing Debussy or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder now. Now that I think about it a little bit, there's there's almost uh, there at times there's a little bit of a ragtime quality though. Hmm. So you want to go back another forty years? Um, that uh, that's that it seems to me just because it's so percussive. Oh, that, um, that's interesting. I, I never would have thought about that. That's I'm so happy to hear you say that, Todd, because I wrote Joplin question mark in my notes and then felt stupid about it. <laughs> well, don't. <laughs> or else we're both stupid together. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Todd, your role on this show, uh, besides saying smart things about Love Supreme, is uh, to make Victoria feel less stupid. Hey, uh, uh, to serve is my is my only role. <laughs> well, Victoria, I know that you love Elvin Jones now, so let's talk about Elvin Jones. Um, the third track starts with an extended drum solo, maybe the most famous drum solo in jazz history. But Jones is really on fire for this whole album. I completely lack the ability to talk about percussion, so why don't you describe Elvin Jones's approach to the drums and what adds to this saxophonist's album? Holy cow. Like, I I don't even know how to talk about what he does, except to say, man, I wish I could do that. It's so good, and I love it so much. Uh, I love that solo and that he gets to have the spotlight for so long. It's so tight. Like, it's 
it does what the best percussion is supposed to do, um, which is my band director used to always tell us that the best percussion works like the strings on a tennis racket in that it is a balance between tension and support that it supports the other instruments in whatever piece you're playing uh, while giving them space at the same time to move around. And I think that's what the drums are doing here uh, with the piano um, in, in the third section and, and primarily the saxophone in some other sections. Uh, I have a habit, as you know, Michael, of uh, trying to drum along to pieces I really love if we're in the car or listening to music at home, and I would not even know where to start uh, with this. Like, I, I couldn't even begin to think about keeping up with it. Um, as I said last night while we were, we were watching a, a bit of a documentary on Jones, uh, his drum fills have fills inside them. It's insane, and I love it. I, I I love that char- I love that characterization fills within fills. That's, that's it's the only way I know how to describe it. Like yeah, it, it no, doesn't make any sense. No, it, it's that. Wow. Yeah. Um, I don't know if y'all know. I I mean, I I did play drums. I, I mean, had, that was my. I had thing. no idea you played drums, Todd. Or I might have given yeah. you the drum question. I'll live again. <laughs> no, no. Me too, but only for a minute. <laughs> no, it's um, it's astonishing. I mean, I I, I think it's astonishing. If, and I hadn't thought of fills with within fills, but that's right. I mean, the you know wheels within a wheel, I guess. <laughs> uh, you, you know what strikes me is you, you say McCoy Tyner plays percussively. Elvin Jones mm-hmm. is using. It's not that he's not playing it rhythmically, but he's also like there's a melodic quality to what he's doing on the drums. Um, especially in that first movement, where where he's playing as much for color as he is for um, as as he is to keep any kind of beat. Yeah, that's that's accurate. I I, I almost envision it as if he's playing the harp. Mm-hmm. Oh, I um, like that a lot. Except he's an octopus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's it's. It, there, there is that smooth, um, like you said, it's for color. Um, and uh, you know, another thing that I noticed um, as I was list, I was listening to the. I, I, we're not. I guess we're not really going to be talking about this, but um, this whole suite has only been played one time live mm-hmm. uh, in Paris. Um, and if you get the double CD, super deluxe version or whatever, you get that recording. Um, and there are times in that, and they're largely mirrored in the studio recording, um, where I feel like he is taking off on a solo while Coltrane is soloing. And it's not like it's a, you know, it's more like a pilot and co-pilot than anything else. But um, some of the stuff that he does is... Um, it's just out of this world. Um, it's not mere timekeeping. It's not the harp-like color, um, but it's it's just a um, a counterpoint to to what Coltrane is doing in a way that is just it seems to me unique. Um, and again, evidence of their their ability to work together and and really converse together while they play. 
Do they do they stretch out the tracks in the live performance, Todd, or is it still thirty eight minutes or whatever? Oh boy, um, I think the li- this, I think the studio is thirty two, and I'd have to look at. I it it feels longer. Um, I might be confusing it with the alternate takes of resolution and things like that, which are definitely longer. Because um, you know, Coltrane could literally solo for an hour. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Um, yeah, I, 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 I do, I do think there it is slightly longer. There's certainly a place where he repeats some things that he doesn't in the studio cut. Well, the uh, the thing we've somehow avoided talking about so far is the most essential part of a Love Supreme, which is Coltrane himself. <laughs> He's one of the two or three best and most important saxophonists in jazz music, to be sure. I, I assume he's probably the best, unless you think Charlie Parker is the best. I, I, I don't know that anyone else could possibly have a claim on it. Um, how does he approach his instrument here, Todd? Well, um let me put it I, I i i can i can look at it through the lens of of sort of his development um to then say what he's doing differently here i think that that may be helpful because he he does span the he's he, he goes from the 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 bebop through the cool jazz phase through through this hard bop you know which 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 you would look at the miles davis for um so he's he really begins as he begins as a session saxophonist with with a number of big band folks. I mean, he starts with Dizzy Gillespie for heaven's sakes, um, and plays with Johnny Hodges in, in another big band, and then makes the real break with Davis. Um, you were talking earlier about the fact that Davis sort of re- you know runs through musicians like a, <laughs> you know like a chainsaw through wet grass. Um, he uh, had originally hired uh, Sonny Rollins, who's well-known, famous, another one. You could probably put up there close to Coltrane, if not with him. Yeah, he's definitely um, top five. Yeah. Uh, so he was the previous tenor sax uh, uh, player in this quintet that Davis forms in 55. Uh, but then he left uh, because he had to take he had to go kick a drug habit. Um, I think it was heroin, actually. Um, and so, uh, he joins the, the quintet, uh, in, and, you know, a couple years later leaves f- for his own drug addiction, drug addiction issues. Um, and then when he comes back, uh, in, you know, like 58 to 60 or so, Cannonball Adderley is playing, and there's another name that, that we should probably mention among, among them. And, and like Giant Steps is like 1959. Um, but even when he's playing, you know, playing things that he has composed, um, Trains Blues is is one example from from the one of the early albums of the quintet. Um, you you see signs of things coming, but largely he's pretty he's playing it pretty straight. Um, and you know, if you listen to the solos in So What or Freddie Freeloader from the Kind of Blue album that that y'all did the show on. Um, you're starting to hear a different Coltrane. Um, mm-hmm. The tendencies that we see later into the 60s that are starting to break out, um, are they're there, but they're just under the surface. Um, it's interesting to me, as I was thinking about this question, I went back to listen to those because I knew he was playing and, and Cannibal Adderley were playing 
and they often had solos that were back to back. And there are times when you can't tell who's playing. Yeah. I mean, you can Which tell weird one of them's about, alto. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and Cannonball Adderley is classic alto sax. You know, mm-hmm. um, he's a much more traditional but the two player than than Coltrane. Is. Much, absolutely, much, much more. Um, but I, I think you've got this. You know, you you have moments where there's this wailing virtuosity. I mean, that that's, that's on the edge of being chaotic. Um, and when you get the giant steps. Um, Giant Steps is where Coltrane is really starting to do some of the things that he does here. Um, uh, you know, the traditional jazz has this pretty standard chordal structure that you would recognize where um, you go from key to key, largely following the circle of fifths. So you're sort of transitioning up and down by perfect fifths and fourths. Um, and Coltrane introduces this thing, which is now called the Coltrane change, where he goes in thirds. Um, and so some of the places where there are chord changes going on um, are are doing weird things on the circle of fifths. If you know any music theory, there he's taking big steps. I mean, that's why Giants. I think that's why Giant Steps is called Giant Steps. I would. I. I. I, I have no reason to. And I don't have any evidence for this, but I've always, what, I've, what he, I've always assumed what he's doing is he's taking these humongous steps on the on on the circle of fifths, um, and you know in in giant steps he's got one the sixteen bar section he's got where he changes keys twenty six times, and he and he <laughs> does it fast, and and no, no you know no wonder the poor pianist can't keep up. Because uh, how can you keep up, let alone do any kind of improvisation? So he's he's really playing with with chord structures in a way um, that is quite innovative. Um, and uh, you know, it, it I, I think I think what I would say is about about his work. It's kind of funny. He's he's characterized in his day as anti-jazz, um, at least by some skeptical critics. And, sure, but they said the same thing know, about Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. Well, for yeah, matter. for sure, yeah. So you know, uh, and that's really my point. Um, you know, what jazz artists often did was forbidden, uh, in some sense, but they retained some of the same sorts of harmonies and so forth that classical music embraced at least early. Coltrane is saying, ah, why not? Why not take these giant steps here too, and do something uh, even more revolutionary? So you know, he's. He's just he's being a jazz artist on top of jazz. You know, he's saying, all right, the jazz is becoming too conventional. And so I'm going to take a different approach and actually innovate where innovation hasn't yet been done. Um, It's kind of funny to me that that, uh, you know, Miles Davis, a decade later, is actually does a few of the same kinds of things um, that Coltrane does here, even though they their paths diverged. Um, so specifically to this, to this album, I, um, you know, I, I, I think one of the things that comes to mind, actually, you asked me about the saxophone and all I can think about is him, him chanting Love Supreme. This is the most famous the, moment on the record. Love Supreme, Love Supreme. Love Supreme, Love Supreme, Love Supreme, 
Well, it is. And uh, you know, he's actually multi-tracked 19 times on that chant. I didn't know the number, but I did. I was going to mention the fact that yeah, he overdubs, which um, is another thing. Yeah, well, well, it is, but he's he's obviously willing to do something different. But you know, when you uh, you know you start this piece, the very beginning of this piece has this gong which is not a common jazz instrument. <laughs> and you you end this uh, first movement with um, what was a, a an absolute, you know, improvisation. I mean, this was not planned for, apparently. Because when he first says a love supreme, all you hear is supreme. It's like Rudy Van Gelder, who's the producer, you know, rushed over, realized he was doing something and had to turn up the mic. Huh. Um but uh, but yeah no I so I you know I was I was trying to think of how I would characterize all of the parts of this because he's you know there there is this wailing tone you know this this he's he goes up into the high the upper register which he does all the time later um, and he really in resolution he really hitting those high notes um, in you know in a way that sort of approaches the real frenetic stuff that you see um, from him later. Um, yeah, because after this record, was, he really goes avant-garde. He 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 absolutely he does. And so here in this in this piece, there's this mix. It's almost like this is the the the, the transition from, mm-hmm. um, you know, from pupa to butterfly, you know. Um, but I, you know, I, I as I think about the 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 last piece, Psalm. I mean, if you want to point to anyone, at anything is really a man praying that's how i read that mm-hmm. that's how i read that last bit and and there's reasons to do that too which we'll talk about i'm sure mm-hmm. but i've gone on too much victoria what would you add uh, i don't think i have much to add to that well let me read this is what amiri baraka says about coltrane in his book blues people um and the book was written in 1963 so he's writing before a love supreme but not long before a love supreme John Coltrane's music is fanatically chordal. In his solos, Coltrane attacks each chord and seems to almost want to separate each note note of the chord and its overtones into separate entities and suck out even the most minute musical potential. With each instance, Coltrane redefines his accompanying chords as kinetic splinters of melody, rather than using the generalized block sound of the chord as the final determinant of his music's direction and shape. And I think that is a really excellent description of what he's doing on the the more frenetic moments here on All of Supreme. I don't know that it describes that last um, that that last movement, but it certainly describes the first three. This idea that he's taking the chord and blasting it into pieces and playing all of them at once somehow, or so fast that it's close enough to be at once. Yeah. Wow. I like that. I like that. I was trying. I was trying to decide at first whether this was a critic who was being critical of him. Oh no, no, <laughs> no. Uh, but then you know, no, it was it was apparent towards the end. He's really, um, yeah. No, that's a great characterization. Blues, uh, Blues People's a fantastic book. Uh, you know, Amiri Baraka is one of the the big black arts guy, black the the arts mm. movement of the Black Power movement, and uh, Blues People is his kind of trip through the history of. African-American music and particularly the ways that white people have co-opted African-American music. 
So I think one thing he likes about Coltrane is that he's harder to co-opt, um, which doesn't, I guess, stop three white people from attempting to talk about him here. I, I love that book, and uh, I'm a, a big Baraka fan, as you know, and it makes total sense that he would say that about Coltrane because music is, is such a force for cultural cohesion, but also disruption in Baraka's plays. If you think about his most famous play, Dutchman, um, the, the lead-off from the conductor in Dutchman, um, who's described as mumbling a song to himself that can split people apart. Mm. Um, I, I didn't remember Baraka's uh, description of, of Coltrane being what you said, but it, it makes total sense. Well, uh, Aleph Supreme is generally considered the ur-text for a subgenre of jazz called spiritual jazz. And I have a vague understanding of what that term means, but I think I need help in fully grasping it. Victoria, what do people mean when they refer to Coltrane's work or Pharaoh Sanders's or Alice Coltrane's as spiritual? And, and what does it even mean for instrumental music to be religious? So I will be a thousand percent honest and say I had never heard of that term until I started prepping for this episode. So I, I did some reading around and I found lots of original documents of Coltrane's. Um, he wrote himself personalized liner notes for this record. And um, I, I found a, a really cool picture of um visual notation of the entire album that hopefully we'll include in the show notes and something interesting written at the bottom of those uh, visual notations um, is a prayer uh, no road is an easy one but they all go back to god he writes and um, he describes in that same manuscript uh, the fourth section psalm as a musical recitation of prayer by horn and an attempt to reach transcendent level with orchestra rising harmony to a level of blissful stability. Uh, I also found an interview with uh, the Reverend Franzo King of the, I did not know this existed, St. John Coltrane <laughs> African Orthodox Church in San Francisco. Uh, I so, was hoping we'd get to the church. Oh, yeah. It yeah. was going to come up either for her or for me. <laughs> I, I had no idea. I'm completely fascinated. Yeah. Um, and that reverend um, describes that um, Coltrane's playing, his congregation said, corresponds directly uh, to that prayer, that, that the music sounds like the fact that uh, all roads are hard, but eventually they all lead back to God. And I, I, I don't really know if I'm answering your questions about what spiritual jazz is, uh, except to say it's, it seems a lot like individual spiritual experience, that, that there's some kind of unity of pain and joy that can only be found in, in the spiritually transcendent um, and, and as a white person, you know, there's no way I'm going to be able to understand that facet of, of the black experience. Um, but I, I appreciate it. And um, I, I really learned a lot reading about it. But gosh, that description of pain and joy combined, I mean, 
what better description could there be for the way Coltrane is playing on this album? Like, you, you listen yeah. to the, that first track in particular, and it's hard to tell if he's in anguish or he's in ecstasy, you know, because mm-hmm. those two things have combined so much for him. He said he, he said he met God when he was going through heroin withdrawal. So which is it, you know? Which is it the, exactly, sound, exactly what this album sounds like, right? Right, right. What would you add about spiritual jazz, Todd? Uh... Well, I, so I, I I I did a little bit more. This was actually one of these. Well, we'll we'll, we'll talk about it later. But one of the one of the one of the places that I really appreciate uh, uh, what is being done in here is this fourth movement psalm. And I found I actually found a YouTube video that goes through and and it goes through the handwritten liner notes that Victoria was talking about. Um, and it, it, it's a long, you know, a poem which he's entitled "The Love Supreme," and it's it, it's really long. What this video does is overlay, uh, you know, it has the text, and the text has this highlighted region that follows on what's being done. What what Coltrane says is he's actual, not Col- Coltrane, but his biographer Lewis Porter. Um, he uh, affirms that. Um, he's going through syllable by syllable mm-hmm. that prayer, and um, this video is actually super fascinating. And I'll tell you, if I get yeah, if I get choked up and talking about it, I'm sorry. But I mean, this is you know I hear in this prayer um, the sort of desperation of of, of this man um, and the finding of peace um, as you know the the music just. I loved it always anyway. I had no idea he was actually speaking out a prayer with it. Um, and putting those two together is just incredibly moving. I think they discovered that the the uh, the solo matched the syllables of that poem when that church in San Francisco started reciting the poem as part of their services. Uh-huh. Interesting, yeah. The that other thing, the other thing I'll note about the way he uses religion. So you've got that, um, you've got that four note theme, a love supreme, and it starts with the bass. He plays those four notes in every key in the first movement of a love supreme. As if to suggest that wherever you look, the love supreme is there. And one thing I w- was was curious to do, boy, you know, we've hit both of the moments of my. <laughs> 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 uh, 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 the, the two things that I will we'll, we'll talk about them again, I guess, briefly. But you know that that act of of marching around the circle. What I haven't done is see if I can figure out if he's if he's making a Coltrane change at every at every point. Oh, that's an interesting um, question. Uh, it's it's oh one one thing I didn't know, and I guess this is this is really connected here, um, is that the Coltrane change brings you around from root to back to root by an equilateral triangle on the circle of fifths. Huh. I don't think that's an accident. 
Oh, I, I just found, I was just researching some more, and I just found someone who says those four notes are um, sort of a musical version of the sign of the cross. Hmm. I do think we need to be careful in ascribing too much that's specifically Christian to Coltrane, because while mm-hmm. while he was raised um, Christian, um, there's no doubt that spiritual jazz, his and everybody else's, is heavily, heavily, heavily influenced by world spirituality as well. Uh, which I, is why I think that gong is there at the beginning of the of the first track. Uh, yeah. Um, so th- there's a lot of there's a lot of Eastern spirituality, a lot of Islam in Coltrane's. Uh, I, I think idiosyncratic is probably a good word. Religious beliefs, <laughs> but there's also a lot of Christian stuff in there. And if you if you read the poem that that Todd is talking about, it's it's. I, I hate to put it this way because it sounds like I'm putting him down, but it's very mm. nonspecific, right? Because his idea is mm. that God is everywhere. And so there's no specific manifestation of God that he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it might be the sign of the cross, and maybe he would even go along with that. Um, but he would say that's one piece of this thing, and it's much bigger than that. Well, yeah, part of, in, in, the, in the poem itself, I believe, is the line, all paths lead to God. Right. Um, it's interesting among his circle uh, is Ravi Shankar. Sure. And he, in fact, he names his son Ravi after him. And Ravi famously, you know, has influenced a, a large number of of artists at the time. Um, but also Sun Ra. <laughs> and I don't know if you know anything about Sun Ra, but if there's anyone who embodies um, un. Unconventional spirituality, it would be Sun Ra. (laughs) Well, and the other thing, the other thing about Sun Ra that's important for spiritual jazz is the kind of Afrofuturism part of it, because Mm. um, spiritual jazz is taking off right around the same time as the Black Power movement and the Black Arts Mm -hmm. movement, and it's heavily connected to political movements for Black liberation. Um, now I don't I don't know that I hear that as much in a Love Supreme, but it's certainly it's that that kind of Afrocentrism certainly becomes very important for Alice Coltrane's records uh, in the seventies. Alice Coltrane um, being his second wife, his uh, his widow yeah. ultimately. Yep, one weird dude, <laughs> that Sun Ra guy. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he claimed to be from, from outer space, right? Like he would never even he would never even acknowledge that he was really from Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I can. So this is just a, a, a college memory here. My first semester of college, I took intro to sociology with a guy who plays jazz and blues. Um, and among the things that we among our texts for that course was a documentary about Sun Ra. <laughs> a joyful it, noise. I, I, I you know, That's, I don't remember the, I don't remember the title. All I remember he, is him walking around. I, I remember him walking around in a red latex suit with you know some helmet on. Um, well, <laughs> oh my goodness, what an interesting way to learn sociology. But uh, <laughs> but I mean, there's there's. I, I'm so glad you brought Sun Ra up because it really connects Coltrane to the the, the kind of weirdo. Uh, psychedelic black music mm-hmm. of the 70s, like people like George mm-hmm. Clinton, 
uh, Parliament Funkadelic, stuff like that. I, I mean, Coltrane, Coltrane is in that. That his his work is in the DNA of that, and it, it's oh, it's yeah, yeah. He's the fountainhead. I mean, in a lot of ways, you know. Um, and I I think the willingness to break with some of the conventions, um, and and. I, I don't know. I, I hesitate to bring this up because I haven't looked enough at it. Um, but Ralph Ellison doesn't have a whole lot of great things to say about Coltrane. That makes sense. Or, or about that style of music, even though, you know, Ellison writes a lot about music and, 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 and the African-American experience. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a time of some serious change, but also some... Um, I. It, I, I I like I, I like the fact that we brought the, this conversation around to the non-Christian side of of this because that's really what's going on here. There really is this sort of syncretistic um, uh, syncretistic thing that's going on in music of the time that Coltrane is sort of out ahead of uh, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he's in, he's interested in Eastern spirituality years before the Beatles are. You know, he's hanging out with Ravi Shankar long before George Harrison gets to him. Well, I want to end by looking at some individual moments from the album. I'm sure we've talked about a few of them already, Todd. You said uh, yours have been used up, but uh, as we head for the door, point to a passage or two from a Love Supreme that deserves our listeners' attention. And uh, Todd, you start, and when you're done, pass it over to Victoria. Okay, okay. So I'll be I'll be pretty short. Um, I, I I do think that uh, you know three quarters of the way through acknowledgement, the first of the four movements, this fact that he cycles through twelve keys of this four note you know theme that is just transposed into each of them uh, is is really a it's it's a fascinating way to end that and you know the the connection that he himself makes in those liner notes. Um, that a love should a love supreme should be played in all keys together um, is really kind of telling. Um, but the second one is is really the, the one it just gives me goosebumps every time I come to it and it's the opening of the last movement. Um, although like I said, it's hard for me to limit myself to just that that uh, uh, that moment. But it's it's where he the the piece really is beginning to take on a very different tone. Um, it's you know again very conversational, um, but the change of tone is is and the and the mood of the piece is is it's pretty stark here. I mean, I think the end of the preceding movement um, brings us to this sort of space of quiet, um, and at the at the outset of Psalm, you've got Jones suddenly playing timpanis and um, cymbals too, which are overdubbed. But you've got this washing cymbal thing going on. You've got the timpanis rising up and down. Um, and every time I get to that moment, I, I literally get goosebumps.
because you've got the one solo horn, um, no longer frenetic, but just voicing this plea and this this psalm of thanksgiving. Um, and you know, now that I'm aware of this connection between this poem and um, and 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 the piece as played. Uh, I I don't think I can avoid goosebumps for the foreseeable future. I mean, but I literally just that there's this this really, to me, really moving interplay going on between the timpanis that are brought in, the symbols that are sort of just there for that splash of color and and Coltrane's um, Coltrane's ballad like style at that moment. Hmm. Victoria, what do you got? Uh, hilariously, the same exact section, <laughs> which is funny. Um, I, I um, mostly wanted to talk about what the symbols are doing. Uh, I described them as uh, shivery, which I guess goes with what Todd was saying about getting goosebumps. And um, so I'm. I know we've talked about the fact that I'm I'm into percussion. I played drums for a couple of years. Um, I never care about symbols. Like symbols aren't. Not a lot of people use them a lot or well. They're not a flashy part of the drum kit unless you know you're just banging away at them and not being skillful. But uh, this section, because of the relationship that the symbols have, um, not just with the timpani, which I won't belabor because Todd did that very very well, but with the kind of weaving that that, that uh, Coltrane saxophone is is doing in that part. Um, it shows how someone who is a master at percussion can use the symbols to effect that I never would have thought about. Um, there's just enough to where you can feel um, the vibration through the smooth tone that the saxophone sets, and that cutting through isn't an entire cutting. It's just a kind of shivering over the top that really rounds off the sound. Um, I love the atmosphere of that bit. Um, it, it feels like like relief. Man, well, do you, do you get the orchestral? I mean, because that you know the, that is again one of the things that you quoted from those liner notes. Um, it's orchestral with only four people playing, you know, with some overdubs. Yeah, I, to be fair. I, a Overdub, word sure. that a word that I kept coming back to in my notes was how um, how rounded the sound is. It's it's mm. round and and full and and complete. Mm. Mm. Yeah, the 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 tightrope this record walks between composition and improvisation is very interesting to me because he he clearly had some idea of what he was doing it's not just made up on the spot but at the same time um they're listening to each other and kind of building it as they go and i mean what i'm describing is just what jazz is post about 1942 um but uh yeah well, thank you both so much for coming on to talk about uh, a record that's very important to me, but very difficult to talk about. You bet. It's great, great pleasure. Yeah, thanks. I, I 
appreciated the opportunity to extend my musical education. Well, Victoria, you've got next week. What are we talking about? Uh, we are going to talk about the role of prayer in the church and uh, some some of the ways we learn to pray our uh, common prayer experiences. So kind of a, a personally inflected review of prayer. And Grubsy will be back for that one uh, in all likelihood, unless something goes terribly wrong, I guess. Uh, until then, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. On behalf of Victoria Reynolds Farmer, Todd Pedler, and the absent David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, but let your faith be stronger.